Well, I don't know if, uh, if you had a good week. I don't know if you had a bad week. I don't know if you just had a kind of a, a blah week. But I hope and pray that Jesus was the center of your week. I hope and pray that no matter what you went through, whether it was good or whether it was bad, that he was at the center, that he was your source of comfort and strength. And if he wasn't, I pray that we learn to, to make him the center of everything. And so this morning I want to talk to you about what I think is, is the difference between the rich young ruler and Peter. A couple weeks ago we talked about the rich young ruler and we talked about how he knew who Jesus was, how he had gone to Jesus, how he had heard Jesus' invitation, but how he had decided that his wealth was an object of affection and worship more than Jesus was, that his loyalty was there. And so Scripture says he went away with great sadness. And then we looked last week at Peter's life, and we looked at Peter, though fallible, though his walk with Christ was messy, though he made a lot of pretty big mistakes, Peter ultimately learned what it was to submit, to be repentant, to, re to be restored, and to be used in a mighty way of God. See, oftentimes I think we, we look at repentance, we look at uh, feeling bad for our sin, and we only, we only look at that in terms of the effects of our sin. In other words, what really hurts us, what really makes us feel bad, is not that we've sinned against the holy God as much as the consequence of, those, of that sin. In other words, our choices or our sin have made us uncomfortable or we've, we've had effects or consequences that we didn't want and that's what we feel bad about. Not that we sinned against a holy God, but there's a different kind of repentance. True repentance is that we feel bad because we've sinned against him. And Peter understood that and that's really the difference between Peter and Judas. The Bible says that in 2 Corinthians 10.7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly, godly sorrow leads us to spiritual life, and worldly sorrow, being sad primarily because the effects of our sin, leads to spiritual death, leads to shame and guilt, and sort of a pity party, Right? There's a difference between Peter and Judas. It's a difference between maturing and growing from our mistakes, from humbly asking the Lord to forgive us, and then walking in that forgiveness and being more obedient to him and walking away. And so this one, I want to ask and answer the question, and it's the main difference in these men's lives when it makes some observations. And the question is this. It's the title of the message. Who's the boss? Some of you, if you're... You know, around my age, you remember the sitcom back in the day, who's the boss, right? But who's the boss? That's the question we're going to ask and answer. And I think it's the difference when we look at the lives of the rich young ruler, when we look at the life of Peter, and when we consider our own lives. Who's the boss? Who's in control of your life, of my life? If we want to be effective for Jesus, we need to be prayed up. We need to be walking in the Spirit then we need to be intentional or focused or aware. And we need to be prepared. We need to know the word of God to be equipped. We come here to worship God because he's worthy, to fellowship with one another. But primarily, after we come here to worship God, is to be equipped by him to do his work, to do his will 
in our lives. And so this morning, I pray that we can do that together. Father, meet us here in this place. Lord, do what nobody can do but you, God. Change our hearts. Convict us, encourage us, challenge us, equip us. Have your way. Continue to have your way in and through each of us, God, that our lives would bring you glory. For you alone are worthy. We thank you for your word, your spirit. We pray right now that each and every one of us are ready and willing to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you hear me read this scripture all the time, and it's because it's an invitation, it's a promise, and it's a process. It's an invitation, it's a promise, and it's a process. It's also, to me, one of the most beautiful promises in all of scripture. And I think it's, it's the difference maker in our lives. I think if we understand it, if we embody this, if we walk into this, it will make a difference when we, like Peter, stumble and fall, whether we walk away entirely because of that discouragement or whether we repent, we surrender, and we follow him. Some of you know the word repent to Roman soldiers. They understood what repent means. It doesn't just mean feeling bad. The beginning of repentance is feeling bad. We feel bad that we've sinned against God. But it also means, repent means you're marching one way and you stop and you turn around and you begin to march an entirely different way. So repentance involves not only feeling bad about our sin, but a commitment to surrender and to be led by the Spirit of God. So I want to read this and then we're going to take, take it apart. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Two very important Greek words in this passage, they're translated as weary and heavy laden. They are both present participle verbs. It means that people who are constantly weary and constantly heavy laden. It means living in, in a sort of distress, in a sort of restlessness. It's not an occasional anxiety. It's this sense of just weariness, of exhaustion, of being beat down by the world. You've heard me say before that people have come up to me over the years and said, Pastor Brian, it's so hard to be a Christian. And I'll say, amen. But it's so hard, it's even harder not to be a Christian. It's even harder to navigate the human experience to try to live life apart from Jesus with no source, with no direction, with no strength and joy and peace. And so when, when Jesus talks this invitation to the, those who are weary and heavy laden, he's talking about those who, like the rich young ruler, who, who have sought to find their satisfaction in something other than him, that which could never possibly satisfy. You've heard me say before, Augustine famously said, you have created us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. The world is filled with people who pursue things other than Jesus, and it's never enough. There's always a, a constant searching and reaching, and there's an anxiety, and there's an uncertainty, and, and that is what Jesus is speaking to here. 
See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had established a list of spiritual duties for others to perform, hundreds of things that weren't in the Bible. And these rules were a burden. And some of you may feel like being a Christian is a burden. Being a Christian is, is a struggle. It's restrictive. And if that's how you feel, if that's your perception of Christianity, then you fundamentally misunderstand Jesus' invitation. It's like the commercial with the old ladies that say, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works, right? You know what I'm talking about? Nobody's seen that commercial, I'm the only one. The one guy, okay. The ladies with the Facebook, the old ladies are trying to figure out how it works, and this one lady that gets it, she's like, that's not how this works. That's not how it works. If your, if your perception, if your idea of what it means to be a Christian is restrictive or a burden, that's not how it works. You misunderstand Jesus' series of invitations. Jesus' words here help us understand his statement to some of the religious leaders. In Luke eleven forty six, 46, when he says, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. See, the Jewish leaders of, of the day taught that you'll get to heaven if you do a series of things. Still today, that's the perception of many, that there's sort of a scale, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then somehow that tips the scale and you get to heaven. But the Bible is clear that that's not the case at all. In fact, the Bible says that the best we can do, our righteousness, if we were perfect and righteous, that that compared to God's holiness is filthy rags. I'm not going to tell you what that means. You can look it up, but it's disgusting. It's offensive. And that's the point. Isaiah is saying our best efforts are offensive in light of a holy God. It's only through Christ that we can be made righteous. And so living the way Christ teaches isn't restrictive. In fact, it's just the opposite of restrictive. When I was wrestling and, and, and trying to find my way in the world and I was reading the Bible, I, I wasn't a Christian yet, and, and I remember, I'll never forget reading Galatians where Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And I remember thinking to myself, when I think of Christianity, there were a lot of words I thought of and freedom wasn't one of them. And that's the way the world thinks. You ask people who don't know Jesus what Christianity means and they're not gonna say freedom. But those of us in Christ who know Jesus should absolutely make that connection. And that was Paul's point. The very thing you long for, the very thing all of us look for is a promise in Christ. Freedom to live for him. Surrender and obedience to God is the only thing that provides true freedom. And that freedom enables us to live a fulfilled life. The one who created us, the one who loves us, knows the way we ought to live to give our lives purpose and meaning. So I want to take a look at this scripture. I want to take a closer look. First, Jesus says, come to me. That's an invitation. And it recognizes that we are missing something, that there's a longing, that there's something wrong in our lives. And coming to Jesus is indicative of us understanding that there's something that he has that we need. And so we're going to go to Jesus. It's, a, it's an invitation. C.S. Lewis, for all his intellect, you know, for all his intellectual arguments for God's existence, to C.S. Lewis, the most compelling reason for the existence of God is our appetite for his presence in our lives. 
He made the case that we have, you know, we have a physical appetite for food and there's something in the world that, that meets that need. We have a longing for a relationship, for intimacy, for all these things, and there is a corresponding reality to those, to those longings. And he said, deep down inside, each of us long for heaven. We long for eternity. We long to be unconditionally known and loved. We long for a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so his conclusion is, therefore... If we have a longing that nothing in this world could satisfy, we were made for another world. And to him, that was the most compelling. Because each one of us, deep down inside, whether or not we, we consciously can articulate it, long for something, we know fundamentally there is something missing. There is something wrong. When you look in Genesis in the garden, as soon as sin enters the picture, the first thing that happens is an identity crisis, shame and guilt, and so we hide. I've preached before that each of us want to be fully known and fully loved and we're, we're sure that those things can't possibly happen. That they're mutually exclusive. That if somebody really knows everything about me, they couldn't possibly love me. And so we live our lives neither fully known nor fully loved and there's a God in heaven who fully knows us and fully loves us and says, come to me. And so we must acknowledge, we must understand that invitation involves our humility and involves us saying there's something I lack that Jesus has. And so we come to him and we believe he alone can meet our needs. He alone can provide rest. And this isn't a nap. That's not what he's talking about. It's not a short respite. It's a long, it's a process of being nourished and healthy and well it's a refreshing and a renewal. It's a peace. I've preached before that a walk with Jesus, that discipleship is simply responding to a series of increasingly intimate invitations from Jesus. That's what it is. First he says, believe in me. The rich young ruler did that. He believed Jesus was who he claimed to be. That's step one. And then Jesus says, come to me. Go, be willing to go to Jesus, bring him your problems, bring him your heaviness, your burdens. And the, and the rich young ruler did that as well. And then Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. I think it was Francis Chan who said, we gotta stop telling people to invite Jesus into their lives. Jesus doesn't wanna be in your life and my life. Our lives are a mess. Jesus invites us into his life. Jesus wants us to enter into his pattern of living. And so we have to understand that. You know, we say we understand, we say we're followers of Jesus, but for some of us, I think we're asking Jesus to follow us. I think we're saying, this is the plans I have, this is the way I want to live, these are the choices I want to make. Jesus, why don't you come along with me? That's the source of our problems. That was the problem with the rich young ruler. He understood who Jesus was. He believed in him. He came to him. But when Jesus, when Jesus spoke deeply, directly to him, to his issue, because everybody has their thing. Everybody has that idol on their heart, on the throne of their heart. For him, it was his wealth. And so he, you know, he, he sort of did the math. He thought about it. And in his mind, he didn't believe that the rest Jesus promised, that the very thing he was lacking and needed, that it could be met in Jesus. He thought instead it would be met in his possessions. And the Bible says because of that, he went away with great sadness. 
And Peter, for all the messiness and all the mistakes of his walk, understood, even when it was at a distance, he followed Jesus. And his relationship with Jesus was such, and he loved Jesus so much that he jumped out of the boat and he, and he, and he swam to Jesus. Because he loved Jesus, not just with his mind. You don't love people primarily with your intellect. It's part of it. You love people primarily with your heart, and that's the way Peter loved Jesus. See, what the rich young ruler wanted was Jesus to to confirm his own mission, to confirm what his wants, to say, Jesus, I have all these things going for me. I've done this. I can check all the boxes. Some of us in Christianity, that's what it is. It's checking boxes of things we think we're supposed to do as Christians. You know, when I hear these deconversion stories, these people that talk about how, you know, they, they, were, they walked with Jesus or they knew Jesus and now they, they've walked away from their faith. And, and, and whenever you hear them, there's always these reasons. And in no sense is it, is, does it sound like somebody's talking about somebody they loved. It's always informational. It's always, I thought this, I thought. And, and I have to ask the question, were you ever really in love with Jesus? Did you ever really receive his love? Were you ever changed by his love? Or was it just information? Was it just ideology? And then finally, after follow me, he says, abide in me. Remain in me. Live in the awareness of the presence of Christ in the good and the bad, regardless of what's going on around you. It's understanding that the peace Jesus promises, the reason it surpasses understanding is because it's not circumstantial. It doesn't have to do with your situation. It comes from within. Everybody in the world understands peace when things are good. That's not a peace that surpasses understanding. That's a peace that's well understood. What people don't understand is when you can stand in the midst of chaos, when Paul and Silas can be in prison and still be praising God, that's the peace that Christ promises. Believe in me, come to me, follow me, and abide in me. And the next passage says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And that's our main focus this morning. Who's the boss? Whose yoke leads you? See, a yoke is a, is a wooden cross piece fastened over the neck of two animals. And in Bible times, people understood that very well. It was mostly used to uh, have bulls or oxen plow the fields, and they understood that the, the animals had to be equally yoked. They had to be of, of about the same size and strength, because if not, they would fight against one another. It wouldn't work. And so they understood what it, mean, what it meant to be unequally yoked, and they understood what Jesus meant when he talked about a yoke. It made sense to them. And an easy yoke meant that the burden being shouldered was not heavy because Christ would be pulling with us. In fact, if you think about the notion of of there being necessary for it to be equally yoked, I don't know about you, but if I'm yoked with Jesus, that's not equal at all. I'm nowhere close to where he is. So what does that mean? He's going to be doing the majority of the work. But what else does that mean? What am I going to do? Am I going to submit to that or am I going to fight against him? Who's the boss? Who's in control of my life? Who's in control of your life? That makes all the difference. See, in the rich young ruler's case, he was the boss. And in Peter's case, beautiful Peter, passionate, sometimes thoughtless Peter, led by his emotions. I, I love Peter. I can relate to Peter. 
I was telling my wife the other day, my whole life, I'm, I'm led by f- sort of feelings and emotions and reactions. Some of us, that's, that's the way we are. And Peter was kind of like that, but he knew enough to know when he needed to stop, when he needed to surrender to Jesus. See, a Christian pursuing God and a non-Christian pursuing the world will be pulling in different directions. Philippians 3 talks about those who live for themselves instead of God. Verse 18 through 20, many live as, as the enemies of the cross of Christ. We can look and see that. Their destiny is, their, is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Their God is their stomach. In other words, they are slaves to their appetites. They are being led by their pursuits. We've been saying for the past few weeks, we can know the right things about God. We can know the Bible. We can come to church. We can do spiritual exercises. We can serve and give. But if our hearts and motives aren't right, we're the ones controlling the yoke. We're not being led by Christ. We're fighting against them. And just think about that for a minute. If I ask you the question, do you want to fight against God? You'd say, of course not. But the choices we make, what does that say? Are we allowing him to lead us or trying to convince him to walk and follow us? See, we can't possibly do what he wants when we're leading. Ever try to fight against God? We said last week when we talked about the life of Peter, what God often does in his infinite grace and mercy, allowing again and again, just giving us over to ourselves sometimes and going, okay, you want to do the yoke thing? All right, go ahead. Just, I'm just going to sit back here and, you know, let me know when you need me. You know, I use the expression of, of, uh, of being in a, in a kayak or a canoe. And you're, you're paddling away and you got somebody else there with you and you think they're paddling too and you look back and they're just sitting there. They're not doing anything. And I know because I'm usually that guy. <laughs> Are you paddling too? Oh, okay. Yeah. But that's, some of it, that's, that's what it's like, right? We need to do our part, but know that we're yoked with Jesus. He's going to do most of the work, but he'll allow us to battle within ourselves. And then like in the life of Peter, what he'll often do is he'll bring us back to those same places, those same processes, those same patterns, and he'll meet us there again and say, are you ready yet? Are you ready yet to take my yoke upon you? Are you ready to stop fighting against me? I don't know about you, but I've never known anyone who had success trying to fight against God. And then it says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. See, we need not just to come to Jesus, but we need to learn from him. And we can't learn from Jesus if we're trying to run the show. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. He knew who Jesus was, but he didn't trust that Jesus' yoke was easy. We need each one of us to have hearts that are willing to receive, that we would learn I said in the first service, and I was talking to somebody the other day, the most difficult, the, the thing I like least about pastoring is having to confront people about things. I, I would just rather not do it. And the example is like, you know, I, I have a 21-year-old son, and he's, he do, he's works good, does good in school, is a great kid. He doesn't seem to know where dirty clothes go. Just, I don't know, it's a, it's a defect. He just doesn't get it. And so I always find his clothes on, on the ground all over the place. And I'm just, so what I, I can... 
I can tell him, hey, you know, <laughs> here's this, we got this thing, there's a hamper, it's right near the washing machine. But what do I do? Well, it's usually easier for me to just pick it up myself. And so that's what I do, oftentimes. But that's not the right way to be. That's not helpful. That's the easy thing for me. And so whenever I have to, to address things with people or whenever I have to have those kinds of conversations, it's the thing I would like least in the world to do. And in fact, I always sort of wrestle with it because I, I would rather not have those conversations and I'll, I'll have excuses why I've tried before and, and maybe I shouldn't try again and, and, and I'll, I'll go through all these things or I'll say, you know, because it's easier not to say something. But that's not what it means to be a pastor that's not what it means to love somebody. That's not what it means to try and help people learn and grow. And by the same token, I myself have to be willing to receive each one of us. We have to be willing to learn and receive, which means we know that we don't know that there's things we need to learn and grow. So there's some humility in that process. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Jesus is the master teacher, and some of us, we think we know it all. Jesus says, I am the way, and some of us think we found the way without him. And so we pursue whatever it is we pursue, and we never learn, and we never grow. John 3, 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, we're called to emulate Christ and I think when we take it our look at our lives, sometimes we can be overcome by how different we are from Jesus. And so that can lead us to become hopeless and frustrated. And a lot of times that happens because we look at somebody else and we think, I could never be a Christian like them. See, we do a lot of judging, we do a lot of assessing way more about other people and their walk, good or bad, than our own. Either we look at people and they say, oh, that guy's a mess, or, or y'all gonna hear this sermon and say, oh, somebody needs to hear this, my wife needs to hear this. If y'all sitting here right now, this message is for you. You need to hear this, not your spouse, not your neighbor, you, me. But it's easy to get distracted, it's easy to focus on everybody else. If you've ever read Screwed Hate Letters, it's probably one of C.S. Lewis's deepest theological works. And it, the notion is that there's, a, there's an uncle devil, and he's writing a letter to his nephew devil, and he's trying to explain how to keep Christians away from serving Christ and to walking with Christ. And the number one strategy is to keep their focus on everything and anything other than their own lives and their own walks. And it's sad to say that oftentimes that's successful. I know in my life. Because it's easy to do that. It's easy to take our focus off of him. And so we can become hopeless. We can become discouraged. Peter could have done that. Peter could have said, oh, all these other guys walk with you. Here I am. I'm cutting people's ears off. He's, he's saying, get behind me, Satan. I mean, how do you like that? Talk about a rebuke. Jesus is telling about what he's got to do and the plan. And, and Peter's like, no, no, no. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. If anybody had a reason to feel discouraged, it could have been Peter. Peter could have been looking at all oh, these. Uh, John, he's the one who Jesus loves. I'm not Jesus. I mean, a million reasons to figure out, oh, I keep falling. I denied him. Throw a little pity party, right? He could have done that. You think you're the only one who's felt discouraged in your walk? I'm sure Peter felt discouraged in his walk. 
But I'm sure in Peter's life there was a sense, like the rich young ruler, that he walked away with great sadness. But you know what? He came back. He came back and he decided to pursue Jesus because he knew that that was the only hope that he had in this life. It's the only hope any of us have in this life. Paul felt like that. Romans 7.15. For what I am doing I do not understand. Anybody ever feel like that? I keep doing the same thing. What is wrong with me? For what I am doing I don't understand. For I am practicing what I would... I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Paul, Romans 7, 15. Paul, you could make the case, was the best Christian, right? I mean, he's Paul. Wrote most of the New Testament. And he's saying, I don't get it. I don't understand why I keep doing the things I hate and the things I want to do deep down inside, I don't do. The rich young ruler, after he walked away sad, he was probably like, man, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? But what do we do in that moment? Maybe you're here and maybe you feel like that right now. Maybe you felt like that before. I've, I've failed. I've fallen. Okay, but now what? I don't care what you felt like when you came in. I don't care what yesterday looked like. What about today? What about this moment? The best pastoral advice I've ever gotten in my whole life was a friend of mine. I was really struggling. And he said, have you prayed? And I said, man, I, I, can't, I can't even pray. And he said, why? I said, because if I was God, I wouldn't listen to my prayers. And he said, why? And I said, because they don't deserve to be answered. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, I've had every opportunity. I've had every, everything in my life is lined up. I've had every privilege, and I still continue to do stupid things. And my problems are all of my own doing. And there are children who have illnesses and God should answer those prayers, not mine. And he said, the best thing I've ever heard to me, who cares what you feel? Who cares what you think? And who cares what people told you? What does the word of God say? See, the reality is that none of our prayers deserve to be answered. Not one but God meets us in our brokenness, in our humility, and changes us if we allow him to. So what was Paul's conclusion? Does he give up? What was Peter's conclusion after he just again and again and again made a series of mistakes and must just be feeling like, man, did he give up? No, he submitted himself to the Spirit of God. He was filled and empowered, and lives were radically changed. He could have walked away. Paul could have walked away. Difficulty comes, and people do one of two things. They run away from God, or they run to his arms, like Peter, jumping out of that boat, trying to get to Jesus as quick as they can. When we fall, when we make mistakes, our heart should be to get as close to Jesus as quickly as we can. Not to just stay and sit there in our shame and guilt. And so in Romans 7 verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Acknowledging and recognizing his condition. Recognizing his situation was wretched. There was nothing he could do. There's nothing anyone else could do. And recognizing that, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Instead of despair, his focus turns to gratitude. Because the more you realize, the more I realize how much we can't do it, the more gratitude we have for Christ who did do it and who does do it. See, the reason for the law is to point us to Jesus, to make us understand that we could never fulfill the obligations, no matter how hard, hard we try. The saddest thing in the world to me is people who claim to know Christ, people who know who he is but still walk in bondage. There's no such thing as a selfish Christian that's an oxymoron. But for so many of us, we have the yoke. We're the boss. We're on the throne of our hearts. See, from the beginning of the time until now, there's really only one sin, and it's pride, and it's the root of all others. It's saying that I know better than God does, that my way is better than his way, and then I'm going to build my kingdom instead of his. See, Paul understood it's not a question of whether or not you're a slave. It's just a question of what you're a slave to. And if you're not a slave to Jesus, you're a slave to yourself. That's the reality. But many Christians live just like the world. There's no difference. You look at their lives and there's no difference at all. They may know the truth, but that truth has never set them free. In fact, it's worse than the way the world lives because we should know better. You know, I, people love to say, oh, things are getting bad, things are so bad. Let me, let me fill you in. Right, let me. From day one, from the beginning of time, things are bad. Human beings have been self-centered and destructive and sin, new sins haven't been invented and created. It's always sex, money, power, all the same things, trying to win the applause of men from day one. You want to make the case things are worse now? Historically, they used to sacrifice babies. There were temple prostitutes. You'd go to church and they were male and female prostitutes. Human beings have always been depraved. The Bible said our hearts are deceitfully wicked. There's nothing new under the sun. Things are always bad. People left to ourselves, we are enemies of God. There is nothing inside of us that seeks after the things of God. But in his grace and mercy... He extends to us the invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I alone will give you the rest that you're searching for. The purpose, the meaning, the peace, the strength. We have to respond to that invitation. Or if, even if we don't physically walk away, we will mentally live with restlessness and sadness and anxiety that one foot in the world and one foot in the church, never realizing what it means to be free in Christ. The Bible says that Jesus came to set us free, not place us in bondage. It is for freedom that Christ came. That's a promise. What the Bible says is true. Do we believe that? I pray that right now, that you're not holding tightly onto anything God wants to remove from your life. And that every time you hear anybody preach, that your processing is, Lord, how can I apply this in my life? What are you saying to me? Like David, Lord, search my heart. Not my neighbor needs to hear this. Not my wife needs to hear this. Or my husband or my son or my daughter. I need to hear this, Lord. Search my heart. Show me in me 
what I need to change. Every time you hear a sermon, it should just be not information. It should be spirit-filled transformation. We should allow the Spirit of God full access. Not, you know, okay, God, you can come in most of my life, but that door right there is going to stay locked. I've used the analogy before. If, if you went to the doctors, you know, your, your wife says, hey, you got to go get your arm checked out. You have the arms, you know, been giving you a hard time. You're like, ah, I don't want to do it, you know, because that's what we do, right? No, you really should get that checked out. And finally, you go to the doctor and say, okay, doctor, this arm thing, you want to look at it. And they do an exam. They get you on the table and they say, I got really bad news. You got cancer. You're dying. And you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just wanted you to look at the arm. You say, yeah, but you got, you got to deal with the cancer. I want to deal with the cancer. And you jump off the table and you run away. And you say, well, that's absurd. Who would do that? But we do. We do it all the time. We, get, we think we're brave because we come to Jesus with this little thing. And then he points up to something else. And we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not ready yet for that. The rich young ruler wasn't ready yet to deal with the thing with his wealth. He had all these other things lined up. He was hoping that would get him points. But Lord, look how close I am. He doesn't want people who are partially surrendered to him. Our God is a very jealous God. He wants people who are sold out. That doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly. That doesn't mean we're not going to stumble like Peter did. But that means we understand the cycle of repentance and surrender and obedience continuously. Who's the boss? Who's yoke? We pray that the Lord would draw us to himself, that he would eliminate the distractions. How many times have you thought to not go to a service or not go to a group or not go to something and then shown up and found that God missed you in such a profound way? Say, boy, am I glad I came. You see, the enemy doesn't care if what, what keeps you away from the things that are good for you what keeps you away from nourishing, life-giving, spiritual food. The enemy doesn't care if you're in a bar room or you're at your kid's sports game. It doesn't matter as long as you're away from the things that nourish you. And it's so easy to have all sorts of other priorities in our lives and to miss out on the life-giving source. The enemy wants to steal our peace and our joy. He wants to rob and kill and destroy and Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. Do we believe him? See, Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to his power working within us. His power. You know what? His power can't work within us if we're not accepting his yoke. And here, here's the thing. The best life you can imagine your best plans for your life don't even come close to comparing to God's plans for your life. Not even close. He's simply looking for people who say, here I am, God. Use me. See, he doesn't just meet us in our brokenness and heal us and set us free. He picks us to be on his team. I was sharing earlier it's kind of like this. We, we play volleyball now on Sundays, and I'm not, I'm, you probably can't tell by looking at me, but I'm not very athletic. 
And so the other day when we were playing volleyball, they had captains and they were going to pick teams and I like decided to sweat. I'm like, oh, this is high school all over again. Nobody's going to pick me. I was so sad. Because <laughs> I don't have talent. I don't have ability. What am I going to do, you know? But Jesus picked me. Jesus picks you. We got picked to be on the best team in the most important game. And we can look and be like, amen. We can look and be like, but me, I don't, I, you know. And he's like, no, no, no. You walk with me. I'm going to change you from within. I'm going to equip you. And I'm going to do big things in your life. Look what God did with Peter. Look what God does throughout the Bible with those surrendered to him. Not because they were incredible people necessarily. Not because they had particular talents necessarily. But because they said, here I am God. Use whatever I have, whatever I am, and leverage it for your kingdom. The rich young ruler wanted to build his own kingdom. And Peter understood it was about building Christ's kingdom. So don't just listen to this sermon passively. But ask yourself honestly, who or what are you yoked to? What is the boss of your life? Who's in charge of your marriage? Your finances, your work life, your relationship. Who sets the goals in your life? And if it's not Christ, you're fighting the yoke. And it's no wonder when people say, you know, I just feel like I'm struggling in my walk. The Bible says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Those posters here, the other night the youth group had a prayer walk. And they spent time at each of those stations meditating, reading the Bible, praying. And we want to have a weekly prayer time. And we'll facilitate some time to do that and people will be free. But it's necessary, especially in this world of distractions and chaos. You know how often the Bible says, and then Jesus went away to a solitary place to pray. And then Jesus left the crowd, and then Jesus woke up early. And I'm not an early person, so I was like, Jesus, couldn't you have done this at night, like late at night? Couldn't have been that. And then at, late at night, Jesus went to pray, you know? Jesus knew, as God himself that it was necessary for him to spend time with the Father, to be filled, how much more then do we need to do that same thing? If you're struggling in your walk, who has the yoke? You trying to run the show? Because I promise you, you're going to struggle for the rest of your life. You're not going to win in a battle with him. The number one reason we don't see the change we want to see in our own lives is because we're still running the show. And the only possible reason for that is that we don't believe Jesus when he says the things he says. In Galatians 3, I'm going to read this from the message because I like the way I like the way they put it. And it says this, Galatians 3. It says, you crazy Galatians, did somebody put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses because something crazy has happened? For it's obvious you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Because see, whenever we take our eyes off the cross, we begin to doubt. If you have any question whether or not God loves you, look at the cross. People say to me, does God answer prayer? And I say, yes. And he's answered every single prayer that's ever been prayed, and it's right on the cross. 
Whenever we take our eyes off of him, we begin to doubt. How can we not trust that he wants what's best for us when he sent his son to die in our place? How? Paul's saying, what are you, nuts? What are you guys, did you forget about the cross? I can't imagine that you could be in that place where you knew about Christ and you knew about him crucified. And now the, what we're familiar with is when Galatians says, what began in the spirit, are you now trying to complete in the flesh? What began as the process of God, what do you think, it's by grace you've been saved and now it's by your own effort you're being sanctified? You think you're more like Jesus because you're trying to be? Or that's also his grace and the spirit of God working in you? And so what does that mean? You're gonna take his yoke continually. Learn from him. What does Jesus invite us into? A philosophy, a habit, a hobby? Jesus calls us primarily into a relationship. Into a relationship. It's not just about right thinking. It's not just about information. It's about falling in love with someone so deeply that nothing compares to that. That the Bible says, comparatively speaking, your closest relationships look like hatred because of your love for Jesus. That's what's going to sustain you. That's what's going to keep you. Because no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, I'm in love with Jesus. And my prayer is that each of us, myself included, fall deeper in love with him. John 15. I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You are justified. You are made right with God because of Christ. So this should change your view of yourself. When I said to my friend, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't feel like praying. I don't, I don't feel like God would, I don't deserve all that stuff. It's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of a new identity. You're created, each human being is created in the image of God. Sin tarnished that image, and Christ came that that image could be restored. That means when God looks at you and me, we're righteous. He sees Christ. We're perfect. The Bible says we're holy and blameless. That means we have infinite worth. The creator and sustainer of the universe sent his son to die so our relationship with God would be restored. You don't think he wants what's best for us? We're all created in his image. Colossians 1. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And though formerly you were alienated and hostile because of your words and because of your deeds, he has now reconciled you and his body through death to present you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. So regardless of what you think about yourself, regardless of what maybe you've been told your whole life, regardless of what you feel, if you've put your life in Christ's hands, if you've trusted him for your salvation, you are holy and blameless in the sight of God. Walk in that. Walk in that. So what do we do with this newfound status? Jesus says, abide in me. 
Believe in me, come to me, follow me, abide in me. Remain constantly. Adjust your life according to his life. Seek to pursue the things he would have you pursue continually. Sanctification is progressive, but we participate. But not if we have the yoke. Not if we're controlling it. It doesn't matter how long you've attended church. How long you've been a Christian. My friend said to me once, I've known Christians that were Christians for 50 years. And I've known other Christians that were just Christians for a year, 50 times over. Time goes by. They don't mature. They don't grow. Nothing changes. Everything looks the same. Year after year. It's the saddest thing in the world. So do we give up? Do we try harder? Neither one. We confess our dependence on Christ. We pray more. And, and the, beautiful, the most beautiful model of prayer is Jesus in the garden, right? Lord, change my circumstance. Take this cup from me. Make my situation different. But if that doesn't work, if that's not your plan, not my will, but yours be done. We're good at the first part. We're good at, Lord, change my circumstance, change my situation. But we're not so good at, but your will not mine be done. And that's maturity. That's growth in all things. After we profess dependence on Christ, we confess, we repent, and then in obedience we surrender again and again. All things to him. The branch, branch does not bear fruit apart from the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. You can't find happiness and peace apart from Christ. See, the world... The world says, pursue you. The world says, if it feels good, do it. You deserve to be happy. And Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you have to be willing to lose it for my sake. But if you pursue the things you want above all else, you will have lived and missed what it means to be alive. You'll have missed what it means to truly live. The world says, get more stuff. Jesus says in Acts 20, verse 35, in everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, help the weak. And remember the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than receive. The world says, if someone offends you, declare war. Slander them on Facebook. Try to hurt them. And Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The world says if your friend does something to you, never talk to them again. Hold a grudge, walk away. Jesus says Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. The world says you need this and that and you deserve the American dream and it should be yours. 
And Jesus says, be willing to lose your life for his sake. See, even Jesus' own inner circle thought the kingdom was coming soon. We mentioned last week that they thought that Christ would usher in the restored kingdom. They believed that he would set them free from oppressive rule. Their engagement was, Lord, remove this difficult circumstance from me. And Jesus wanted to set them free from their condition. And even his own inner circle began to desert him because they weren't able to put to death their own ideas, their own plans, their own desires, and exchange them for his. I don't know about you, but every time I had a plan or I had an idea and Jesus had another one, his was always way better than mine. I am glad that a lot of my prayers were never answered or that they were answered his way and not mine. Because some people have faith in outcomes. Some people's faith is in the desired outcome, not in him. You see, discipleship demands sacrifice, and Jesus never hid that cost. But it's not a burden. It's a blessing. The worship team can come up. See, I I say again and again and again, and, and I wish my words could adequately express my heart in this, that there's no better way to live, that there is no better life, that you can look around and you can see people who pursue all kinds of things to all kinds of extremes, and it's never, ever, ever enough. But if we're in Christ, if we pursue him, we'll realize, like Paul did, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, of loving, of walking with Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. But I consider them them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And he says, not that I've already obtained this. Not that I've arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of which, that which Christ took hold of from me. Brothers and sisters, I have not yet taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forget what is behind. Forget the past. Forget yesterday. And today, in this moment, right now, press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you so much for your word, your spirit. We thank you for conviction. We thank you, God, for your invitation to bring our burdens to you, to bring our anxiety and our frustration and our sadness and our grief, all those things, our failures and our failings and our distress, and to bring them to you and to find rest, to be renewed and refreshed, and then to be chosen and be put on the greatest team in the greatest game in the history of the world, to be used of you, 
Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy in our lives. And we pray that you would continue to have your way in and through each of us, that we would surrender to you, that we would allow you to control the yoke, to be the boss, to control our lives. And we can't do that without you, God. Change us today. I pray that every single person in this room, God, that if they don't know you, that if they haven't trusted you, that if they're still pursuing things that leave them feeling empty, that right now, right in this moment, that your spirit would soften their hearts, would draw them to you. People listening at home, anybody, God, that you would do what only you could do, that they would surrender for the first time And Father, for those of us who've done that, God, that we would again, that we'd be willing to say, Lord, search my heart. Show me those areas that I need to repent, that I need to surrender, that you could do what you want to do in and through me, God. Have your way. God, we love you. We're in awe of you. Let our lives bring you glory. That's the desire of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.